Lord, we love you. You are good. Lord, we love you. You are good. Lord, we love you. You are good. Lord, we love you. You are. Oh, if he's been good, sing it to him, beloved. Lord, we love you. You are good. Lord, we love you. You are good. Lord, we love you. You are good. Lord, Hallelujah. And Lord, we come before you now as your word goes forth. There may be someone here who is hurting without hope, who feels completely alone. Lord, these people need a word from you, and they do not need me to get in the way of that word. We pray that your words be spoken, that People see you and not me. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Giving honor to God, without whom nothing would be possible, as well as giving honor to Bishop Charles E. Blake Sr. in his absence. Amen. I promised him that he would at least have a church when he came back home, and that we wouldn't cause too much damage in his absence. I also want to praise the Lord for my mother, Lady May L. Blake. Amen. Mama. And I won't even get to start talking about her because that would take up all of my time. Amen. I want to praise the Lord also for my my heart, my love, my lioness, Lady Deandra Blake. Amen. And she's been working so hard and praying so much for the upcoming Believe Conference, and I would strongly encourage and pray that all of our young women and women in general just get involved with that, pro with that program and that conference, and it's going to be coming up on June the 7th. Let's praise the Lord for Elder John Patton in the house of the Lord on today. He may not think so, but he's been doing an absolutely fabulous job. Amen. Amen. I wouldn't think of going any further without acknowledging Elder Ulysses Henderson. Amen. Who preached such a fabulous word on this morning, the danger of getting up. And if you missed it, just shame on you. Amen. <laughs> but most of all, giving honor to you, God's people. I don't think that I can describe to you how blessed I feel to be able to serve and worship the Lord with you, with such a beautiful group of people as you who make up the church of West Angeles. It has been the great honor of my life to be able to serve and worship the Lord with you as your assistant pastor. I want to thank you again for allowing me to serve you in this capacity for this past year. Sometimes I feel like we've grown together, you see, because in the same year that I was born, 1969, Elder Charles Blake Sr., became pastor of West Angeles Church. So my age matches the exact time that we as a family has been a part of West Angeles Church. 
All I have to do is think of how old I am to know how long Bishop has been pastoring here at West Angeles. It seems almost surreal. Every once in a while, I'll drive past old West Angeles on Fifth and Adams, and I can still see myself as a little boy climbing that tree out there. <laughs> I can still see myself running around the parking lot after service being told by Lady May that if you don't act like you got some sense, you're gonna get a whooping <laughs> when you get home. Now stop running around this parking lot and sit down over there. <laughs> I remember us moving into the North Campus when I was just 12 years old back in 1981. And as I moved into my teens, I would sit in the back of the church towards the rear over there on the, on the west side because I thought that I was too cool to sit up front with the kids and some of the older folk. <laughs> and now I look at us here in this grand cathedral and I see how much we've grown, West Angeles. Now I look at myself and I see that I'm one of the older folk. <laughs> and it almost brings tears to my eyes to see what God has done in the life of West Angeles from that little church on Fifth and Adams to where we are today. Amen. Praise the Lord. I can only imagine what God has in store for us as we continue to grow into our future. I see us in the future, and we look a whole lot better than we do right now. Give yourselves a bigger hand than that, West Angeles. You guys are beautiful. However, near the time when I was first appointed as pulpit manager around five years ago in the year 2009, I'll have to admit to dealing with a special kind of stress and trepidation whenever I thought about West Angeles Church. I've gotten some gray hairs. I don't know if it's time to get the gray hairs or if it was because of the new position that I was appointed to here at West Angeles, but I could, I could drive by the building down Crenshaw and I could feel it. I could walk into my office and I could just feel almost a knot and a burden in my stomach and in my chest. I would just feel a heaviness even as I walked into service. This stress, this trepidation would feel no stronger than when I would be watching Bishop preach the word. Sitting in that assistant pastor's chair, sooner or later you're going to have to ask yourself, could I preach to this great group of people Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, after Sunday, after Sunday, after Sunday, after Sunday. Every time you go to the podium, somebody trying to take your measure, trying to figure out if you have what it takes, or just outright deciding that you simply don't have what it takes. There's no way that I'm ever going to be able to preach like my father, I would say to myself. There's no way that I'm ever going to be able to minister like that. I haven't been preaching since I was 16 years old like he has. When I was 16, my biggest concerns were playing football, getting my driver's license, and how to talk to girls. <laughs> That's what I was concerned about when I was 16. But when Bishop was 16, he was already preaching the word. When dad was 28, he was appointed as pastor of West Angeles Church. When I was 28, well, <laughs> let's just say that I wasn't a model church member. <laughs> when he was my age, 45 years old, he had just lost his father. And he was soon to become bishop of Southern California First Jurisdiction, and he had been preaching for 29 years, and so on, 
and so on and so on. And I appreciate it, but during that time, everybody would be so well-meaning and, and so kind-hearted and have such good intentions when they would tell me just to be myself. Don't try to imitate your father. And I would thank them and mean it from the bottom of my heart, and I really appreciate that. But what of myself was not enough. There seemed to be a number of self-disqualifying statements that I would be making to myself about myself when I thought about what could possibly be my call, my future, my destiny. I would call these my, my weaknesses. I began to wonder more and more why these things just seemed to come and crash into my thoughts. What was it that was making me seem to disqualify myself? Then I remembered a few other men in the Bible that sought to disqualify themselves when God called them to their future. Now we know Abraham to be the father of faith. He who God established the covenant with that laid the foundation for the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now he ultimately accomplished with God's help what he was called to do. But when God first called Abraham and came to Abraham in physical form and told him what he was going to do, Abraham tried to disqualify himself. And he tried to tell God why, why God had the wrong man for the job. In Genesis 17 and 15, then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she will be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said, in his heart, he said this, and said, in his heart shall a child be born to a man who was 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who was 90 years old, bear a child? Abraham, when told that he was going to be a father of many nations, counted within the fact that in his eyes and in his heart that he was too old to be a father and that his wife was barren because of his age, he tried to disqualify himself. Gideon, in Judges 6, the children of Israel were being oppressed by the Midianites and God was going to use Gideon and only 300 men to defeat an army of 100,000 Midianites. But when God first called Gideon, Gideon tried to disqualify himself from his own calling. In Judges 6 and 14, then the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, oh my Lord, how can I, he actually said it like that, oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least or the weakest in my clan and in my father's house. Now, before we even get to know Gideon, we're hearing that he thought that he was the weakest member of his family. I don't think he came to that conclusion that he was weak by himself. Someone at some time had to tell him that he was weak. Now, I know the Bible doesn't speak about them, but I like to imagine that he may have had some very big brothers. Amen. And you know how cruel big brothers can be. I like to take a sidebar to apologize to Elder Lawrence Blake back there. How you doing? I love you, man. Amen. <laughs> but you know how cruel big brothers can be, and they sometimes, and they may have taken great pleasure in tormenting him and bullying him. Gideon may have been the runt of the litter. 
I imagine these big brothers marching off to fight this new enemy that had just invaded their land. Stay at home and take care of the farm and make yourself useful, little man, they may have told him. Imagine his fear as his brothers never came home, and he later hears that they may have all been struck down in battle. Of course he would be terrified. Many of the men of Israel had resisted and been killed as the Midianites took away their daughters and sisters and wives and mothers and the rest of their possessions. And he was off hiding, threshing wheat in a wine press. How many times did he wish that he wasn't such a coward? How many times did he wish that what he believed about himself wasn't true? So Gideon, when greeted by an angel of the Lord, tried to tell God that he was the weakest member of the weakest family, of the weakest clan, of the weakest tribe in the children of Israel. He tried to disqualify himself. And my favorite, most painful example is Brother Moses. Moses was used of God to lead his people, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt into the realization of what God had promised their progenitor, Abraham, more than 400 years earlier. God called to Moses out of a burning bush, which was in it of itself a miracle, and told them that he was to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let his people go. And the first thing Moses tried to do was disqualify himself. Exodus 3 and 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Then God performs a series of signs and miracles. And then after that, Moses then says again in Exodus 4 and 10. Then Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. I can't go, Lord, because I stutter. God then asks Moses, who made men's mouths? And who made men's ears? He said, I will give you the words to say, now go tell Pharaoh what I told you to go tell Pharaoh. However, in Exodus 4 and 13, but he said, oh, my Lord, please sin by the hand of whomever else you may sin. Now, here comes the sad part, Exodus 4 and 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know he can speak well, and look, He's also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God, and you shall take this rod in your hand with which you shall do the signs." Now, Aaron was not called originally to speak to Pharaoh. Moses fought so, God, so hard to disqualify himself to God, the maker of all tongues, mouths, and ears, that God ended up having to bring someone else in on the call that he had for Moses' life. I have to wonder what would have happened if Moses had just taken God at his word and did what God told him to do and believed that God would be his mouth and would tell him what to say. I have to wonder how much more God could have done in Moses' life if Moses had not spent so much time promoting his weakness to God, so much time disqualifying himself. Y'all follow me so far? Amen. Amen. But these men 
when they first came in contact with the knowledge of their calls through miraculous visitation of God or of one of his angels all responded with a number of self-disqualifying statements. They responded with their weaknesses, their deficiencies. They responded with what their past and their circumstances told them about who they were. They were all told that they were going to do great things for the kingdom of God, and they all tried to tell God that he had the wrong men for the job. They were standing face to face with the immutable, eternal, visible presence of God who believed in them, and they could not believe in themselves because God would not have called them if God did not believe in them. They all tried to disqualify themselves. Now, I have to admit that I have kind of a problem with these guys. You see, I've never seen no burning bush. I've never argued or bargained with a physical manifestation of God Almighty and told him to adjust the the laws of physics to fit my view and tell him to put dew on the ground and not on a fleece and then put dew on the fleece and not on the ground. I've, I've never been met and woken up in the middle of the night by an angel saying, thus saith the Lord, do this. Never been in any of those kind of experiences. These men had the experience of communicating with actual physical manifestation of God's existence and indication of his will, and they still doubted his word. And I have to ask myself, how much faith is necessary when you've seen God with your own eyes? God has used much quieter, subtler ways of talking to us about his will, and we are invited, no, commanded, to follow his law and to do what it is that we are told to do through his will. But blessed are they that have not seen and still believe. Blessed are you who have not seen and still believe. I am reminded that all of us are given a call. All of us are given a gift. It, it screams, it, it claws to get out of us. How many of us have had things inside of us, things that we've always wanted to do, things that we would love to be able to do, dreams, aspirations, things that you've always wanted to do? Like, if I would, if I could, I, I would be a writer. If I could, I would be a doctor. If I could, I would be a pilot. I would be a dancer. I would be a painter. It's, it's what you've always wanted to do with your life. It's what you know God called you to do. Its greatness mocks you. It haunts you. It crawls, calls out to you. But even now, life has given you what we would call deficiencies, weaknesses, things like, well, I didn't finish school or get a degree, or like, I'm too shy to speak in front of a crowd, or like, I got a prison record. I couldn't do that, or that would take too much time. God has called all of us to a certain task, yet most of us, even most of us here, have tried to disqualify ourselves and tell God why we think he chose the wrong person for what he would have us to do. Why is that? Why do we believe that it is only through others that God could do something great? Why do we believe that we ourselves cannot be extraordinary? We look at stories on the news of this billionaire or that person who did all of that, and we think that it could only be through somebody else that greatness can be achieved. We forget that when a healthy adult male expends his seed, he releases 40 million to one point. 2 billion sperm cells in a single discharge. 1.2 billion sperm cells in a race, and only one can win. Only one can fertilize the egg. The rest will die. 
the cell that became you, you fought up to against 1.2 billion opponents and won. The greatest odds that you'll ever face in your existence were defeated before you ever even arrived up in here. You are a winner before you even came out of your mother's womb. It's how God can say, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you and I knew that you had what it took to make it. Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you and I knew that you were a winner. Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you and I knew that you were more than a conqueror. Let's give the Lord some praise. Amen. Y'all don't need my permission to praise the Lord. Amen. The odds against you making it here were 1.2 billion to one, and you won that race to exist. You made it. You're not only one in a million, you're one in 1.2 billion. Praise the Lord. Look at your neighbor and say, yeah. Mm. You are one in 1.2 billion. It's just that what has happened since your arrival here that has given you the impression that you can't make it, that you can't do it. It is just what has happened since your arrival here that has you thinking that you could never accomplish something great in this world for the Lord. But all of us, whether you acknowledge it or not, have been given a call. Psalms 107 and 23 says, those that go down to the sea in ships, who do great business on the waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. The writer of this passage is saying that if you stay on the shore, you never really get to see God's greatness. He's saying that you have to launch out into deep water to see what God can really do. Some of us may know what God wants us to do and we don't do it because the unknown can be a very scary place than anything and more frightening than anything that we know about. We're used to our mess. And even though we don't like it, it's mess that we know about. And if we launch out there, it's going to be different and fear of the unknown scares us. But they that go down to the sea in ships that launch out into the deep, the deep can be a very terrifying place. People launch out into the deep and they are never seen again. Y'all saw that movie, The Perfect Storm. Y'all know what can happen out there. They still looking for those brothers. But you have to realize that if God calls you to deep water, then the most unsafe place for you is the shore. I said, if God calls you to deep water, then the most unsafe place for you is the shore. It reminds me of a story that I read about. December 25th, 2004, there were a group of couples vacationing in Indonesia. And on that night, on the next day, December 26th, they had all decided to go scuba diving. They set their appointment. They requisitioned their boat. They requisitioned their captain. They had all of their equipment ready. They made the date and they set their call to go scuba diving. One of the couples, and I don't know who within the couple did it, but they decided that they would stay home because they had heard a couple scare stories about scuba diving and they didn't want to chance and they were afraid and they wanted to play it safe during this vacation. So they decided to stay back and let the other couples go scuba diving. So on the morning of, they all decided they were going to go out scuba diving and this one couple stayed back. So the other couples go out scuba diving to the deep. And while they were out there, they felt this little dip in the waves. 
not knowing that that was a tsunami headed towards the shore. And when you're in the deep, a tsunami doesn't affect you. But that tsunami went into the shore and killed more than 200,000 people, two of which was the couple that stayed back that day. Now that couple had been called to go to deep water, but because of their fear and their apprehension, they th and they thought it was safe on the shore, they stayed there where death came for them that day. If God calls you to deep water, then the most unsafe place for you is the shore. But God has called all of us to deep water. Some of us ignore this call every day and it soon becomes easy to put it in the back of our minds to pass it off as daydream or fantasy. But others of us are faced with it every time they drive down the street and look at their church. Others of us are faced with it every time we walk into our office, everywhere we look, it, it haunts us. It, it cries out to us when we see how things are in the world. It cries out to us when we drive down the street, when we try to sleep. It's always there. And even though we are one in 1.2 billion, how are we to deal with these things that we would call weaknesses? You can't deny them and act like they don't exist. Abraham actually was too old to be having a baby. Moses actually did stutter. You might actually have a prison record or you might actually have not graduated from high school. So, so what's the answer? What's the secret? What is the mystery? How are we to deal with these very real weaknesses? It reminds me of another story. A story about a young boy, 10 years old. I like to call him Tyler. Tyler was a young boy, 10 years old, who lost his left arm in a tragic car crash. Growing up with one arm. So about a year or so after the accident, Tyler decides that he wants to study judo, which is a very interesting thing because you usually need two arms to study judo. So Tyler looks around and he finds this old Japanese judo master. And the judo master kind of looks at him and he says, I'll train you. So Tyler begins studying judo. Tyler practiced judo with all of his might. It wasn't just something that Tyler did, it became Tyler's lifestyle. A one-armed practitioner of judo. He practiced day and night all the time until it became a part of him. After a few months, Tyler recognized that the judo master only taught him one move. So he goes to the master and he said, Master, I've been practicing and practicing and practicing with everything in me for all of this time, but you've only taught me one move. The master looks back and smiles and says, it's okay. You practice that one move. It's the only move that you'll ever need to know. You practice it. So Tyler went back to practicing it. He didn't get discouraged. He practiced this one move over and over and over and over and over again. He practiced it till he could do it in his sleep. He practiced it till he could do it backwards and forwards. He just continued to practice his, this one move that he was taught. A few months later, the judo master decides to enter Tyler into a judo tournament, regional state tournaments. So Tyler goes to the with the master to the tournament. People are looking and it's become somewhat of a novelty that there's a one-armed competitor in a judo competition. So everyone is kind of gathering around to see this sideshow happen or what they thought was a sideshow. But Tyler gets into his first match and he wins the first match using that one move. 
Tyler gets into a second match. And surprisingly, he wins the second match using the one move. Here comes the semifinals. Tyler gets into his third match. Struggles around a little bit, but wins the match using the one move. Tyler has now made it to the state finals in, his, in this competition. Everyone is just like blown aback. He has one more match to win, and this is the championship match. Now, his competitor was a brutal competitor, a mean, mean fighter. And this competitor was a little bit incensed and insulted that they even let a one-armed competitor into this because he thought it disrespected the art and he was going to teach Tyler a lesson and use him as an example of how you're supposed to be when you come up in this game here. People had run up to the master and said, listen, Tyler has been here. He's done such a great job. Pull him out. We know that he can do it, but we don't want him to get hurt. The master sits back and says, no, it's okay. Let him proceed. Tyler gets into the match, and he struggles a little bit, but the competitor can't really get a good hold on him. He gets frustrated, and Tyler does the move and wins the match. Amen. Tyler is now championship over his whole state. Now, on the way home, he's riding in the car in silence. Looks back at that huge trophy, which is so large, they had to lay it down on its side because it couldn't fit in the car. And Tyler kind of looks up after an hour or so of driving, and he looks at his master, and he goes, well, master, what happened? How was I able to win those matches? The master sits there for a second while driving and thinks about it. He said, well, Tyler, that move that you practiced so diligently, that move that you were so determined to know, so determined to learn, that move that you never got discouraged no matter how many times I taught you and told you to do it, that move is one of the most difficult moves in all of the art of judo. And the only way for you to defend against that move is for you to grab the opponent's left arm. Through diligence, through determination, to stick to itiveness, through practice, through dedication, through doing what he knew he was supposed to do, Tyler's greatest weakness became his greatest strength. And we have to remember that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it to the day of Jesus Christ. We have to remember that we can do all things through Christ, which strengthens us. God has something that he wants each one of us to do for the building of his kingdom here on earth. And the great tragedy of our lives would be for us to think that we could not do that thing because of what happened or what we have done in the past, because of the wrong that we have done. If any man or woman be in Christ, they are a new creature. Insert praise right there. You can praise the Lord. Amen. I mean, we put limits on God when we say that he could never use us to do something great because of what we used to do or who we used to be or because of something that we consider a weakness. In doing that, we are telling God that we don't really believe that he has truly forgiven us and that he can't really use us. We're telling him that we don't really believe that he can do what he said he can do. What we are really saying is that even though we know that God has forgiven us, deep down we have to admit that we haven't really forgiven ourselves. Amen. I had to admit that there are some things that I have not forgiven myself for doing. That when I think about those things, I still kind of cringe. 
Y'all know what I'm talking about. Some things that y'all have done that every time you think about it, you break out in a cold sweat. Every time you walk in church, you're like, oh, my Lord. <laughs> but it was those same things that I have used to disqualify myself. It is those same things that I have used to disqualify myself from the thought that God could use me to do something meaningful and relevant in this world, something great in this world. But God wants us to know and truly believe that when we put our lives completely in his hands, that the extraordinary is possible, that our mess in his hands can become our message that my weakness can finally become my strength when I give it to him. And with that, I will read my text. Amen. Second Corinthians 12 and nine. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness, your weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That the power of Christ may rest upon me. That the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, isn't that what we all want? ultimately, for the power of Christ to rest upon us. You see, when the power, the spirit, the presence of God comes upon us, then things happen. When the spirit of the Lord, the power of Christ, rested on Abraham, he fathered a child at 100 years old. When the spirit of the Lord came upon Moses, he lifted his staff and the Red Sea parted. When the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, he blew a trumpet and defeated 100,000 Midianites. When the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson, he tore a lion apart. He killed 1,000 men with the jawbone of a donkey. When the Spirit of the Lord rested upon David, he became a giant killer. He became a destroyer of kingdoms. When the hand of the Lord rested upon Ezekiel, he had a vision of a valley of dry bones. When the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, Jesus said the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captive and the opening of prison to those who are bound. When the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jesus, not even death could hold him back. We all want the power of Christ to rest on us. But when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all in one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire and one sat upon each one of them. And they were all filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. They were all filled with the presence and the power of God. They were all filled with the power of Christ as the Spirit gave them utterance. That's the power. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Give the Lord praise if you want his power, if you want his presence to rest on you. God used everyday men and women like you and me. When the power of Christ rested upon them, they healed the sick. When the power of Christ rested upon them, they raised the dead. They prophesied. They spread the gospel around the world. When God's spirit comes upon you, when the power of Christ rests upon you, you can accomplish 
the impossible. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Everybody stand up and praise the Lord on the day. Come on now, that's reason to give the Lord praise. Well, if not, y'all can watch me praise the Lord. Maybe I might have been preaching to myself today. <laughs> there is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus to break every chain. Break every chain. To break every chain. Break every chain. There's an army. There's an army. Oh, give a praise, West Angeles. Hallelujah. You have the victory. They play softly. I want you to think about the reasons why you believe that you cannot do what you know God called you to do. God has put something deep down inside of each and every one here. And if you are alive and if you're still breathing, you know that He knows who you are. You are not only one in a million. You are one in 1.2 billion. The greatest struggle that you've ever fought, that you're ever going to fought, you fought before he formed you in your mother's womb. Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you and I knew that you were more than a conqueror. You can be the strongest. You can be the smartest, most talented person in the world, and you may think that you don't have any of these weaknesses. You may think that you've already made it and that you've arrived and that you dealt with all your weaknesses and you got it all figured out. But if the Spirit of the Lord does not rest upon you, then nothing is going to happen. So no matter how strong you think you are, you need God's presence. Amen. No matter how much you think you figure, got it figured out, you need his presence. You see, we limit God when we tell him that we are not the right person for the job. Let him turn your mess into your message. Amen. Let him make your weaknesses strengths. Introduce yourself to him so he can introduce you to who you really are. Not who life has told you that you are. Life may have told some of you that you're just too stupid to do something good, that you're fat, that you're ugly, that you have a record. Life may have tried to tell you that you are all of these things, but the only move that you will ever need to know is giving your life to Christ. Amen. You may feel like you only have one arm in this fighting game, but the only move that you'll ever need to know is accepting Christ Jesus. And they told us not to swear, but I swear to you, as sure as I'm standing here, my name is Charles Edward Blake II, that that is the only move that you will ever need to know. That is the only move that you will ever need to have victory. 
that is the only move that you'll ever need to realize how much of a winner you already are before you even got here. The only move you'll ever need to know. And I realize that there is someone here that might not have even learned that move yet. There might be someone here who has thought about how much you would like to do something great. That may have thought about how God has given you something and you simply believe that you are not the right person for the job. But I stand here before you today to let you know that if you put your life in the hands of Christ, there will be nothing that you cannot accomplish. There will be nothing that you cannot do because you can do all things. I mean, you can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth you. And if that's you, and I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to be praying for myself along with you. If that is you, and you know that you've been living far below your station in life, you know that you haven't been living like the child of the king. You know that you've been living as a pauper when you know your father rules the kingdom. If that is you and you know you need to accept Jesus Christ into your heart as your Lord and personal Savior, it's as simple to begin as lifting your hand. Just raise your hand if you want to live a better life than the one that you've been living. Simply raise your hand to acknowledge the fact that you are simply tired of your weaknesses and that you want more out of life. How many of us here want more out of life? How many of you here want more than what life seems to have handed you? How many of you here know that you can be more than what you are? Well, if that's you, then simply raise your hand. It's as easy as that. And let's pray. Please repeat after me. Dear precious Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you have made me what you have made me. I realize that everything I've been through is a part of your plan. And I now ask your forgiveness for the wrong that I've been. I ask your forgiveness for the wrong that I have done. I believe that Jesus Christ came and died on the cross. I believe that he rose again on the third day. And I accept him into my heart right now in Jesus' name. And I will live my life in his victory. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's praise the Lord. Somebody in here just got saved. Mm -hmm.